Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, and today we're doing something a little different. We're recording an episode of Power Problems live in front of an audience. We're in Washington at the annual Student Leadership Conference of the John Quincy Adams Society, a group that encourages college students to get involved in international affairs. We'll be doing our regular show before returning to the audience to shake things up with a little Q&A. And we're going to be talking about grand strategy, the topic of the year here in Washington. For all its bad points, there is no denying that the Trump administration has opened the floodgates for a very active discussion about what American foreign policy is going to look like going forward. We've got progressive activists and candidates trying to build a new structure that links domestic and foreign policies. We've got conservative thinkers trying to meld Trumpist principles with classic conservative internationalism. And we've got academic thinkers from realists and liberal internationalists all trying to make the case that their vision can fix what's ailing American foreign policy. It seems as if the Kennan sweepstakes, that competition to see who can formulate the vision of American foreign policy for the future, is ratcheting up again. So joining me today to discuss the landscape of this U.S. grand strategy debate is Heather Hurlburt, the director of New Models of Policy Change at New America. More importantly, um, she's been working in this field for a long time, and she's the recent author of an excellent article over at Lawfare, which attempted to summarize, dissect, and assess the vast quantity of new articles on grand strategy that we've seen recently. Heather, thanks so much for joining me. Emma, thanks for having me, and thanks for giving me the excuse to talk about the article some more. So as, as always on Power Problems, we'll start with a little discussion of the news. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is our new defense secretary. We actually have a new defense secretary for the first time in months. Um, this is going to be Mark Esper, a former top lobbyist for Raytheon. Um, he's not actually been approved yet, but he has been appointed. Um, and his appointment seems to cement a shift in the Trump administration. We seem to be moving away from the generals uh, giving Trump advice towards more former defense industry officials. Um, And so my question here really is, is this something we should be concerned about? It doesn't seem a particularly good shift. Well, I was going to say we almost have a new defense secretary um, because you there's so much anxiety on Capitol Hill over not having had a defense secretary since the end of 2018 that he was rushed through and had a relatively laudatory hearing with the exception of Senator Warren, who really got into it with him about precisely this, um, can you be a good faith actor? Can you defend the interests of the American taxpayer and the American service member if you are so closely tied to, to industry? So the interesting question, I think, is whether Warren decides to put hold on him for a bit just to make her point, and something we'll come to later in the in the podcast, the way she's trying to make the argument that corruption or um, monopoly capitalism and the the problems of monopoly capitalism ought to be a central concern of U.S. foreign policy. So in a funny way, our little defense secretary um, situation leads us right back into the the grand strategy debate. But to answer your other question, no, the problem of the revolving door between defense industry and high-level defense positions has been around for a long time. So this is kind of a return to the norm, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. It has been around for a while. It does seem a lot more prevalent in the Trump administration, though. Um, and we've seen, you know, I, I was thinking particularly about some of the recent problems we've seen with um, with Turkey, them buying the S-400 from Russia. And, and we actually had acting officials in senior roles in the Pentagon who couldn't discuss with their Turkish counterparts because they were recused because they'd been former employees of the company that made the, the, the competitor system. So this is all a little sort of screwy. 
Yeah, well, one thing I think that needs to be said is the standards for recusal have been raised in recent years to the credit of the Obama administration, which I think started out with a laudable but somewhat naive set of ideas about how it would keep um, people who had lobbied out of public life. Um, it wasn't, I think, the folks who made those rules were not very familiar with the defense sector and how much experience in the private defense sector is considered a prerequisite for, for jobs at the Pentagon, which is another thing that one might discuss at, at greater length. But then when it, they concluded that they couldn't actually staff the Pentagon the way they wanted without some folks with defense experience, they did um, put in a pretty high level of recusal and, and disclosure laws. The interesting thing about the current administration is that you seem to have had a number of officials who have, so number one, you have even more former defense officials than usual because nobody else wants to serve in this administration. And second, you have folks recusing themselves and then unrecusing themselves. So it's actually very unclear whether Esper and some others really have stayed out of the discussions that they said they were going to stay out of. And so you get you get to a situation where you both have ethical murkiness and unpredictability, which is kind of the worst of all worlds. Well, I think we could probably talk about this one for quite a long time, but let's, let's move on because I don't want to spend the whole podcast on this. Um, so shifting gears completely, there is a new head of the European Commission, um, Ursula von der Leyen, the German defense minister, a former German, former German defense minister. Um, it's also looking likely that Christine Lagarde, who just resigned as head of the IMF, she might become the first female head of the European Central Bank. So these are, these are definitely victories for women's rights. Doesn't look like they're actually going to make any particular difference in the European Union's problems anytime soon. Um, but what can we expect from all of this going forward? So both of those appointees are very well known, very well respected, um, as you say, a real, you know, an, an interesting kind of, although the process of selection really dented Angela Merkel's perceived power in that she was perceived as trying to put someone else in. Uh, so it's this odd situation where she was seen to be trying to put someone else, a man, in as head of the European Commission and was forced to fall back on having a member of her own cabinet as the head of the European Commission, which I'd like to lose that way more often, frankly, myself. So in an odd way, it um, both chipped away at her power, then restored it, um, and put these sort of very seasoned, established characters in charge of the European institutions at a, at a really tricky time. The sort of fun point that I'll end on is that van der Leyen actually was a child in Brussels, a child of a, of a bureaucrat in the EU system, at the same time, Boris Johnson, the presumed next prime minister of the UK, was a child in Brussels of someone working. So in a funny way, it says more about the sort of the continued elite dominance of European politics than anything else, which, which may work out well because Johnson can make a deal with those forks or it may go horribly wrong because it continues to fan the flames of populists in Europe who say these are unelected plutocrats who don't respect our interests. Yeah, or perhaps opens up again this question of to what extent populism in Europe and here is really actually being driven by elites that are part of an, an elite class and, and always have been, which is a, a really sort of interesting, not a difference from the historical record, but uh, is, is certainly something that I think people don't often think about. That is such an important point. It is so often assumed that populism is driven from the bottom up. And you really see this whether it is, it is mass killing, whether it's the kind of populism you see in Europe, um, whether it's, it's leading to toppling of governments, that the moment at which populism becomes effective is when elites are factionalized and factions of elites are using 
the masses for their own purposes. Well, let's let's do a third news topic that's a little less political and a little less awful because it's pretty early in the morning here. Um, and so it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, which is is awesome. And there has been potentially some movement on whether we should go back to the moon, send men back into space. Um, so the Chinese, the Indians, the Europeans, they're all sending probes um, to the moon. Donald Trump has promised that we're going to go to Mars soon, though I'm not sure how much motivation he really has behind that. Um, but are we looking at some kind of new space race, livening, livening up our new Cold War that we apparently have? I think we're going to have multiple space races, actually. So there's the one where you're, you're sort of in the colonization or the landing and jumping up and down on things, which is one piece. But we're already pretty far along into the, the race to, to weaponize space or to put things up in space that can quickly be turned from civilian to, to military use. And that's, I think, a lot further along. And it has really big implications for nuclear doctrine and some other kinds of warfighting doctrine that we, that we don't often talk about. Yeah, and we had a great episode on, on power problems uh, a couple of episodes ago, actually, with Todd Harrison from CSIS, where we talked about space and how it impacts nuclear doctrine. So if you haven't listened to that one already, go check it out, because it definitely bears on this question. Um, but let's get to our main topic of the day, um, because it's a really big topic. Um, and, and I'll be honest, as somebody who's been trying to engage with the grand strategy debate myself, even, even I'm finding the sort of amount of new writing on this question to be frankly overwhelming. Um, so you, you wrote this article for Lawfare. It's a really good overview of this debate. Um, but you note in the article that in the month of April alone, four publications published 14 articles in which more than 20 academics, practitioners, and advocates weighed in on the question. Um, but for me, that raises the question, right? So why now? It surely can't all be Donald Trump. Why is this happening? So this is where I put on my fake narrator voice and say, actually, Emma was one of the key participants in the strategy debate um, because she has a very good piece in the Center for New American Security Strategy collection from April, which folks should go and check out um, while you're listening to this podcast on 1.5 speed. Um, but look, Trump is a symptom of the same root causes that have caused this explosion in, in grand strategy and that is that the sort of underlying realities of the world have shifted and the doctrines we had, and interestingly, not just the doctrine, the, the sort of um, internationalism of the center that had held sway for a long time, but also the, the doctrines that its opponents used to oppose it, none of them really fit the observable facts anymore. And so that's happening at the same time as the... Um, sort of crumbling or at least cracking of the old national security establishment that sort of was the gatekeeper of who was allowed to opine on American security strategy. And so with both of those things happening at the same time, plus the ferment in our politics, you have this incredible flourishing of, of ideas, which is, which is actually great. And I just want to say really unprecedented in the U.S., but also I think, I mean, I'd love to be challenged on this, but a moment where so many different sectors of a society feel empowered to weigh in on what that society should be doing in their name in the world is a really interesting feature of, of our democracy at this moment. Yeah, so, so just to sort of follow up on that, when you say that the fracturing of this elite, that things have changed, what specifically do you mean by that? Um, so there's a long-standing trend that goes back to the 60s um, of more and more sectors of our politics being entitled 
or sort of having fought their way into being able to have commentary on what the U.S. should be doing security-wise. And, and so um, coming from where you come from, Emma, as a, as a, as a restrainer, many of these are, are, are going to seem like maybe they were not positive developments from your perspective. But in many respects, the growth of the human rights movement in the 70s reflects um, a variety of immigrant groups saying, hey, we want our country to care about the rights of people where we came from. Um, the growth of the Christian uh, movement in foreign policy, which actually starts with the human rights movement in the 60s and 70s and then veers off in the uh, evangelical direction that we see now sort of reaching its apogee in the Unalienable Rights Commission. Um, that again comes from a group of people who weren't the the Yale and Harvard um, clubby elite that had dominated American foreign policy for the previous century, saying, hey, we have an interest in, in what's, what's done in our name. And then as American political parties democratize more and, and the voices that control both parties shift away from those same elites and other elites rise and you have factionalism within the parties, the factions get their own foreign policy interests. And, and so arguably what's new about this moment is factions moving from, I just have my one interest, which I want, and you can do anything else you want with the defense budget as long as I get my one interest. And we're now moving to a phase where at least some factions, and, and by the way, I think actually this is perhaps even more clearly visible on the right than on the left, where factions are saying, no, we have a complete worldview to go along with our complete domestic view. Yeah, and that's a really interesting change. And, and I think, you know, from the point of view of restrainers or realists like myself, some of this is a double-edged sword because we can make the argument that the growth of particularly that kind of human rights advocacy has not necessarily been good for, for U.S. foreign strategy, or I could make that argument, you might not. Um, but it, it's certainly an interesting change. And one of the positive developments is that it really has sort of opened up this debate to people that maybe aren't necessarily wouldn't have been involved in it a number of years ago. Um, so let, let's move on, I guess, to the substance of, of the topic. And I think um, you did a great job at Lawfare in trying to summarize some of the themes and disagreements um, in what is really, quite frankly, a vast quantity of work at this point. Um, but I thought we could just start to pull some of those out. So let's start with the agreements. Um, seems like everyone dislikes Donald Trump um, and thinks maybe the post-Cold War period was a mistake. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I want to actually be sure that we reference here a set of work that I didn't talk about in that article because 14 was really more than enough. But there is also real ferment um, in sort of Trump and right of Trump foreign policy thinking. And there you have, again, some agreement, um, not that the post-cold, well, you have a spectrum of, of, of view that goes from the entire post-Cold War structure was a mistake to the post-Cold War structure was implemented with a little too much arrogance or a little too little attention to its, to its domestic consequences. But you also have on the right, which I think is important to pay attention to, a school of thought that says we're now moving into a world of great power competition and we can harness this strategy of great power competition to uh, Trump's worldview. And that, I mean, that to me is a really interesting question of can you, in fact, pursue great power competition effectively under, under Trumpian conditions? But, but there's a strong faction that argues that you can and is increasingly taking to 
the journals and the airwaves and the conference rooms to in advance of 2020 to make that point and try to get um, Republicans who might have wandered away, who might not be um, on board with the Trump domestic agenda to come back and say, no, you have to come back because we're going to move in a great power direction. Yeah, I mean, so that's, I think, a really interesting point, because a lot of this debate basically is focused on, I'm just going to say left of center, but basically everyone that's not in the GOP. Um, But that there really has been an attempt by some conservatives to try and meld Trumpist principles, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here in sort of an economics, trade, immigration, and and meld those with their more traditional conservative internationalism, worrying about places like China and Russia, um, trying to smoosh that all together. Senator Ben Sass um, had an article in, in War on the Rocks earlier in the year in which he sort of tried to create a worldview that put those both together. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting melding of those ideas. Yeah. Um, in addition to the Ben Sass piece, um, Professor Henry Now at uh, George Washington is, is another one. And um, Bridge Colby, who used to work at Center for New American Security, served in the, the Pentagon under Secretary Mattis. Um, are other people who who make the argument that that you that you can do this and and the interesting thing is that for them in order to do that they have to argue that the president's actions in the long run are making alliances stronger because interestingly that branch of of republicanism is still sort of clinging to the idea that uh, great power competition is is that the U.S. pursues great comp- power competition with its allies where. I would argue that a core feature of Trumpist foreign policy, which, again, you can find another wing of the Republican Party espousing, is that the allies are kind of a secondary, if if at all, feature. Yeah, and there's, there's almost a kind of selective uh, willingness to view what Trump himself is doing in foreign policy on that side of the aisle, I- ignoring the threats to have, say, a trade war with the European Union while playing up that, that a trade war with China is really great. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I think um, something that we can point out with great ease in the contradictions of, of trying to reconcile those two things on the right also exists on the left, where we have this very interesting sort of desire. Um, even, I must say, this was to me one of the bigger surprises of, of writing the piece was how many of the restrainer realist voices said, well, we actually want to keep most of the allies. We just want it to look a little different or we want them to be a little looser, but no, we don't want to totally cut them off. But this problem of how can you actually keep the allies on security while fighting with them vigorously over economic issues is a is this sort of contradiction that the center left hasn't hasn't even begun to deal with, in my opinion. Well, let, let's move on to that. Let's move on to the, um, the sort of the Trump critics, um, because it seems like the particularly the left is where we're seeing people try to push a variety of different visions. Um, and and one thing that I think is is most interesting is that most of these visions are very skeptical of the use of force, or at least of the of force as it has been used in the post Cold War period. Um, but they're also expressing visions that are very expansive on human rights and other issues. Um, I'm not sure if we can really reconcile these easily. Well, so this is where this is, of course, where you and I have our have our central difference. And so the way I would argue this is that there's been an enormous atrophy, both in um, non-military American power and institutions, but also in imagination so that um, folks who have um, come of age in the field um, and gone to work in the field, um, 
for our listeners, I mean, I'm sitting in front of a live audience of students, um, folks whose entire lives have played out in a period where the U.S. was systematically taking money out of our civilian international affairs institutions and moving it into our military institutions so that if you are a president of any political stripe and you want to do something in the world, the Pentagon is where you find the tools to do it. You know, the fact that our, um, our um, combatant commands have planes, have walking around money, have slush funds. You know, the, the sort of bitter joke is that they walk around like proconsuls. And the ambassador in a country has to go to the, combatant, the regional combatant command and beg, can I borrow the plane? Can you put $25,000 into this project that my political... So, so in fact, we don't actually have at the moment a, a level playing field where I can say, well, if you want to pursue human rights in country X, you do this with civilian means, and it produces this, this result. So, so no, there's a huge amount of useful things that the U.S. can do, and we're useful to our own interests, that the U.S. can do in the world with civilian power. But the a thing that I think I have to criticize my own, my own side, if you will, for, is that it's going to take us some time to rebuild, and, and a significant amount of political will to rebuild those muscles. And if in the meantime, which I think is a problem that Obama fell into, you still want to do things, you're then reduced to the problem of, well, we promised we were going to do this, so guess what? We're going to use the Pentagon to do it, and you're right back where you started. Yeah, and I, I think that that sort of points to a, a central uh, theme here, which is these are all fairly abstract visions, and most people aren't actually making very concrete arguments about how you would implement them, perhaps a little more concrete than we typically see in the grand strategy um, literature, but most people are still operating at a fairly high level of we should broadly do this. Um, so well, let, let's talk a little about the disagreements, because that's where, that's where this gets really interesting. Um, so I think there's a lot of areas we could talk about, um, but there's three basically biggies, as I see them. People seem to disagree on what the US goal in the world should be. Should it be primacy? Should it be something else? People seem to disagree on whether authoritarianism is a threat. Um, and people seem to disagree on China, which is, I think everyone already knows that's a, that's a debate. Um, so let's, let's start with primacy. Yeah, so I think this one is really fascinating, and it's actually being quite well played out in the presidential campaigns as well, in the question of, of what is American power for, right? Is American power, are we first and foremost about democracy? Is that the biggest problem that American grand strategy faces? It's kind of the Joe Biden approach. Is the biggest problem corruption, which is sort of how, if I had to only use one word to characterize Senator Sanders' approach, is it corporate monopoly power, which I would say is the is the Warren approach? Um, and so you have, is it climate change, which is something we don't talk about very much, but there is a swath of American thinking that says all of y'all are ridiculous, and we should only be thinking, or first and foremost, be thinking about how do we use. How do we use our international influence to, to hurry up and, and, and cool down the planet for all of us? So if you take that level of disagreement and then you layer over that, and I thought, you know, Biden um, tried to go at this in a very sneaky way last week by saying, I want to put, put the U.S. at the head of the table again. And I thought to myself, hmm, I think that is trying to slide primacy in there um, for people who don't, you know, either, who either don't speak that language or for the Democratic electorate that is sitting in this middle ground between I'm uncomfortable with the idea of banging the table and asserting American primacy, 
but I also long for the feeling of of my country being first among among others. And I think a lot of the a lot of the strategy writers are kind of stuck in the same space um, of not wanting to say primacy is over, but also not wanting to go back to the behaviors of, say, the early 2000s, where a primacy was assumed that couldn't actually be attained. I mean, to some extent, right, that's the, that's the reality on the ground, which is that the U.S. is still the most powerful country. It will remain so for quite some time, but you know, on a comparative level, the, the extent to which we have outpaced other countries has diminished substantially. So- and I want to say that leads us right into the China conversation, because one of the things I found that I really wasn't expecting is that among China, even among China experts, there's not agreement on how relatively powerful China is or how long it will stay that powerful. That you have people who say, basically, China's already more powerful than the US, and you have people who say China's sort of at a peak and its own internal troubles are gonna mean that it's not able to sustain this level of competition. And I was, I was fascinated to discover that much disagreement. And then from there, you go to just enormous, a gulf of disagreement over whether the US should be embarking on a Cold War 2.0, for lack of a better phrase, should be containing China, should be another phrase is decoupling economically from China in order to compete on both security and economic grounds, or should be continuing to try to make as much money off of China as possible, basically. I mean, so basically the debate about whether we need to take such radical steps as decoupling our economy from China or stepping up our military engagement in the region, those basically all depend on that assessment of how much of a problem you think China is. And at least on the sort of realist or restrained side of that debate, I think that's why we see such divergent views. So we see some people like Stephen Walt, who takes a fairly... um, harsh view of China's rise and is, is quite worried about it. And then we see some other people, and you cite several of them um, in this piece, um, who basically say, well, I don't think China's as big a problem as Walt suggests it is. Maybe we don't need to take quite such a drastic approach. But all of this really seems to depend on just your perceptions of China. Yeah, and there was an open letter published 10 days ago by a number of prominent um, sort of establishment China figures basically saying, hey, let's slow down and let's not move so quickly to to sort of move into a, a Cold War mindset that has sparked a real debate in the, in the community. Um, and I think the, for me, the other piece of this is that it's possible to take a quite negative view or not even negative, it's possible to view China as a rising power that is very interested in occupying a lot of space and in pushing pushing Washington out of a lot of space. Um, and also to say that this is not like the classic great power relationships that we are used to studying and thinking about in that it's very hard to think of a past situation where two great powers economies were quite so entangled with each other and that one doesn't have to be, in my view, naive about the sort of, um, I hate to use the word, the challenge China poses, to, but also to say, so that's great, but Cold War 2.0 doesn't work as a model because you can't really go to war against your primary supplier. You can't really go to war against your allies' supply. The, the, the decoupling model, which, you know, it sounds great. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a globalization of democracies? I, I love that. That sounds fantastic. But 
when we do that, you know, we don't take Vietnam with us because the Vietnamese can't disentangle their economy or their security. And, you know, Emma, you and I may disagree quite a bit between restrainer and liberal internationalist, but neither of us wants to be protecting Vietnam from China. Um, you don't even take Australia with you. And you don't, back to our comment about Europe, you don't take our European allies with you into a walled-off globalization of democracies. So then, if that's your reality, you have to kind of invent something new in the great power competition space, it seems to me. Yeah, and, and what history at least tends to tell us is that even where wars happen and countries are interlinked, it's usually because of the war that eventually those ties break down. It's not that they break down beforehand, um, particularly. Um, and I, I think you're really right that m most people basically are saying, mo most people outside of sort of the commentariat are saying this is not Cold War 2.0. Um, the key difference, of course, is just the interlinkage of these economies. Yes. I'm actually going to break in on you there because I do think... Um, the, the, the um, military establishment has gone very far toward this is Cold War 2.0, which, mind you, from their point of view is understandable because when what you look at every day are the places where China is pushing and testing, you know, what you, where you stand is determined by where you sit. So, so that, and there's a segment of the China expert community, which, again, either because they see it every day um, because they see the horrific things that China is doing to its own people, to the Uyghurs, you know, it is, it's, and perhaps because some of them came up in an age where um, there was a lot of hope that China was somehow a benign power. Um, and so I think in some cases, maybe there's a certain amount of personal disappointment that, um, that the Chinese regime is what it is. And frankly, shock and surprise that this Chinese regime has taken a fairly hard turn as opposed to its, its predecessor. So, so I'm a little less sanguine than you are that this really is a, a fight. And just one other thing that I actually wanna say is that it's playing out now across the US government. Um, you've seen um, crackdowns, efforts to crack down on Chinese students and Chinese scholars in the US um, that, um, you, you put that together with the uh, tendencies to play on racism and xenophobia that are already present in the administration's domestic politics. And we, we get to something that's really very weaponized and troubling um, for any school of foreign policy that you're trying to have. You know, where I sort of worry about this is on the, the sort of the progressive side of the aisle, there are some visions emerging that are basically viewing American foreign policy as a crusade against anti-authoritarianism, against kleptocracy writ large. Um, and, and to some extent, that's because these politicians, people like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, um, but particularly Warren, want to link their domestic political agendas to their foreign policy agendas more strongly. Um, but I do worry that in the context of tensions with China, that that could end up becoming perhaps not an ideological motivation for such a conflict, but but heading in that direction, it becomes a justification for those kind of tensions. Yeah, I mean, I would, I think I would describe the cause and effect a little differently that in the, in the scholarly field, we do have the habit of constructing U.S. foreign policy as, as against something or facing an opponent of some kind. Um, and one could also make the argument that the efforts to rebuild U.S. foreign policy not against an enemy or not against a, a human enemy. So, you know, first that was um, sort of poverty, 
um, the sort of 90s, we're going to spread democracy to the whole world model. Then you have the after 9-11, we're going to fight terrorism everywhere model. Um, hanging out again to the side as though we're going to fight climate change everywhere model. And none of those really has worked very well. And the American political system is such that it's much easier to garner support for anything you want to do if there's a threatening personal enemy on the other side of it. So I think there's that. And then it's also the case that um, the problems that everybody identifies domestically in the U.S. are transnational in nature. So sort of whether you whether you think with Trump that the problem is some people out there stealing jobs from the people who were supposed to have them, or whether you think the problem is monopoly capitalism, um, taking opportunity and respect and dignity away from people, or whether you think the problem is just flat out people somewhere stealing money from people. Um, nobody's analysis of the problems stops inside the U.S., and so therefore you actually have to have a transnational response. Well, so I mean, I think this this feeds sort of directly into one of my last questions, which is the criticism that you you make in your article, and I know you've made before, is that the authors of these pieces are ignoring some things that really should fit in the mold of grand strategy. And I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, ignoring economics, ignoring immigration, ignoring transnational crime or, or other issues like these. And, and this is even as Trump has explicitly tried to, to link those things together. So should we be construing grand strategy more broadly? Well, I would argue that the great historic practitioners of grand strategy I mean, their economies were much simpler. It was a simpler time. Their societies were smaller. But but the fundamental economics of strategy in the national interest, whose interest and for what, was never absent from their minds. And so I I actually think what I'm calling for is a, a grand strategy that, that goes back to that sense of what grand strategy was and a recognition that the the Cold War and post-Cold War moments were anomalies in that we were so economically powerful that the strategy community was allowed to forget about economics, basically. Well, I think it's time we moved on to a little Q&A and, and let some of our audience ask, ask some more questions on this topic. So how we're going to do this is pretty simple. Um, everybody in the audience has cards. Uh, if you have a question you haven't already, please write it down and just pass it to one of our helpers. Um, and I'll read the questions out up here so everyone and all our listeners at home can hear. Um, so I'm going to start with a question from, from Jenny, who's a student at the University of Chicago. Um, and she asks, how do the different strands of this grand strategy debate differ in their China and Russia policy? So we've ta talked a lot about China. We haven't mentioned Russia at all. What about Russia? That's great. Um, I'm actually married to a Chicago grad, and they're always the ones with the, like, you didn't mention this question. So, <laughs> so yeah, there is a similar, um, so the, the debate on Russia starts with sort of, does Russia even matter? And there's a small, although shrunken from what you would have found four or five or 10 years ago, there's, but there's still a small swath of the community that says basically Russia is a declining natural resource state and we shouldn't worry about it that much. We shouldn't give it the status of sort of full-on competitor, which number one, I think um, that's been tried and that just makes the Russian political class angrier and more determined to be perceived as a first-class political competitor. Number two, they have nuclear weapons and an awful lot of territory. So um, I, I personally feel like we've, we've been there and tried that and need to try something else. You then have the folks who put sort of put Russia in the same category with China as super menaces. 
Um, and then you have a sort of mirror of the, is Russia really that, that big a problem? And then the kind of fun sub-debate that we haven't gotten into at all of, you know, should the U.S. be ready to defend um, Lithuania and with what? Um, which, which really um, takes us straight into a liberal internationalist versus, um, versus restraint. Although only again, Emma, I think the most interesting debates maybe on Russia are within the realist restrainer community. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I think pretty much everybody agrees that Russia, at, at least in that community, everybody pretty much agrees that Russia is a declining power and that the, the thing that we have to worry about is either sort of small asymmetric actions, and I say small, but, you know, election meddling, um, or or it's their nuclear power, which the, this administration at least appears determined to just pull us out of every arms control treaty. So I don't see a lot of disagreement there personally. Yeah, I think the other place where, and to your, back to your point about um, the, a lot of the grand strategy writing being rather vague, um, the place where this hits the road in a fairly painful way is if either you think Russia is not a problem because it's a declining power and Europe can handle it, um, or you think Russia is not a problem because um, it's not, um, it doesn't, just doesn't pose that much of a threat to any of our real interests, you then come to the problem of can, what is Europe actually willing and able to do to handle it, quote unquote, and what does that look like given existing U.S. power structures? And, and this is where I frankly think everybody's strat strategy, everybody's theory comes apart a little bit. And um, you're sort of stuck with this situation where um, Russia will just keep testing and probing for advantage and you are kind of either... You, you can't, and especially, frankly, now that a number of European societies are really quite thoroughly penetrated, major NATO allies are quite thoroughly penetrated by, by Russia. So, so that's one where um, the role, the importance of Russia when viewed from a strategic lens is smaller than it's the sort of day-to-day -day hassle that it's very excellent at causing in the actual housekeeping of foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's actually a good point. And then there's another point here, which is, to some extent, I think a problem with trying to engage, sort of with realists or restrainers, trying to engage with liberal internationalists on this question, if you say, well, Europe can handle the problem of Russia, doesn't need the US, and then the rejoinder is, well, the Europeans aren't going to handle it um, because they don't see it as a threat. That's the, it's, it's kind of an interesting response. And if the Europeans don't see Russia as a particular threat, the question maybe is, why should the U.S. be doing it for them? Yeah, I mean, I think the one other thing there is that actually Europe is tremendously divided on this question. Um, and that you do have, you have a swath of Northern and Western Europe in particular that is just desperate for, that wants to do more and wants the U.S. to do more. And then you have a swath of Europe that sort of figures, eh, the U.S. is going to do what it's ever going to do, and that's more than we need. So, so saying Europe will do X, um, again, particularly in the era of Brexit, is, is kind of a misnomer. Okay, let's, let's switch to a different question. Um, so here's a question from Bryce, who's a student at the University of South Florida. Um, and he, or she, I'm not actually sure, um, asks whether some advocates for... Um, downplaying the role of the military come from a very um, a position of arguing for a very robust and active diplomatic core um, but they want to know if what you're saying is a realistic solution about rebuilding the State Department or whether diplomats are just as guilty as creating the current foreign policy mess as the military 
Well, I mean, diplomats implemented the current foreign policy mess. If you're a U.S. government employee, you're fully complicit in its creation and implementation. So there's not a, um, you know, there's not a way that sort of wearing striped pants makes you an automatic good guy or wearing a uniform makes you an automatic bad guy. That's that's not how it works. Um, in my view, um, it is definitely the case that our civilian institutions need not just more money, but a major overhaul and updating for the 21st century. Um, and, you know, you can on the one hand, and, and frankly, that ought to be, and actually that was something that to my surprise, really most of the strategic voices agreed on. I mean, you know, I don't know if you put Stephen Walt and Corey Shockey together to redesign the State Department, what that would look like. Um, but actually, I'd really love to see that. Maybe we'll propose that. I'd watch the Netflix documentary about what happened. That would be that would be something else. Um, okay, so here's a question from Salman Kazmi, who's a student at the University of Texas at Dallas. Um, and he asks, how do we deal with the ongoing regional conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Um, and I personally would broaden that out to be, how does the Middle East fit into all of this? Because we haven't mentioned it at all. Wasn't it fun not mentioning it all that time? It was great. So the first point is actually that we refer to it and conceptualize it the way the questioner did as a regional conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And then we assess for ourselves what is our relative interest and with whom does it lie. And in my view, the U.S. interest lies in keeping that conflict at a manageable level so that it doesn't disrupt world energy supplies or cause any more massive refugee flows than it already freaking has. Um, so... I, that is not, of course, a universally shared view, but I do think it's it's worth underlining that you have almost no one, um, yeah, you have to get all the way over to the part of the the strategy spectrum that says that either U.S. foreign policy is based on a, a very narrow conception of who are our Judeo-Christian allies or the sort of Trumpian our foreign policy alliance structure is based on who we can most effectively get money from at any given time before you get to anyone who's really enthusiastic about um, deepening the U.S. role in the Middle East at this point. Everybody else says the investment there is not proportionate to what we're getting out of it. And that's that's a really huge change. And I think a lot of um, the kind of players in Middle Eastern politics have not yet um, really fully taken account of, of how deeply the U.S. political um, spectrum would like to, to back away. Yeah, so I, I have another question that is apparently anonymous, um, but, but maybe because of the question, um, which I think is really interesting. You mentioned earlier that Trump was a symptom of uh, sort of everything that's wrong with U.S. foreign policy. Um, our anonymous questioner wants to know if uh, American foreign policy pushing for the status quo in American foreign policy has actually helped to elect Trump. You know, I think that that's a very sort of, that's a, so there, there's a couple answers to that question. One is the easy answer that you're always supposed to give is Americans don't vote on foreign policy. But I think that's actually wrong. And the the 2016 election, um, Americans vote on a set of things that include perceptions of how their country is in the world. And a set of perceptions about American foreign policy, some of which, by the way, were totally wrong, some of which were right. 
but that Trump was able to play on that set of perceptions and able to play on a feeling of disconnection between sort of this perception that American foreign policy is this huge behemoth that takes up a huge amount of resources and is stealing from you on a daily basis, plus that it all by itself is what took away your factory, plus that it is bringing in, I think you can't underestimate here, um, and it's really a little different from the sort of failed construct of American foreign policy that the questioner is referring to, but the extent to which American foreign policy got associated with internationalism, with the idea of comfort with a diverse world and flow of people and ideas and languages and cultures. And the degree to which that was a core rallying cry for communities to, to sort of circle around this candidate who said the things no one else would say. And I think we haven't yet really figured out how to how to think about American foreign policy in the context of, of that, that view of everything about wanting to be in the world as foreign. And I think, it, interestingly, um, folks on the restraint side have a particular struggle there um, because there is a strand of American popular discourse that espouses restraint as a way to sort of push away all those icky people who don't look like us. And so while those of us who sit on the liberal international side have a lot of sins we have to answer for and burdens we have to carry around, that is the particular burden that I think folks who think in a restraint frame are, are saddled with from the get-go, you know, mostly unfairly. And, and perhaps why so many realist or restrained views tend to avoid the economic or immigration questions simply because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a live wire. Mm, um, mm. The the obviously not intrinsic to this actual view of the world, but it's very easy to see how somebody who believes in less military intervention overseas might also believe that maybe we should have higher barriers to immigration. And so that can be a real problem. Yeah. And I think there's one, I mean, one of the really interesting things that has happened in the last couple of years is how many folks who sit where I sit or came where I came from have become, I'd call it kind of restraint curious. And I do think there is this perception, which is sometimes real and sometimes not, that everybody who favors restraint on the military side also favors, you know, gutting the State Department and destroying our aid programs and just generally being less engaged. And sometimes that's a really wrong and unfair perception. Sometimes it's not. And frankly, sometimes restraint scholars have never really gotten beyond what we shouldn't do to what we should do. Yeah, and then that's a criticism I've made myself, that we need to be more proactive about what we want to do rather than just what we think is wrong. But let's take another question from the audience. Um, so I have a question here from Keenan Ashbrook of Cornell University. Um, and she says, well, we're talking a lot about strategy, um, but it seems like in the modern era, the risk is that xenophobia and ethnic nationalism is really the thing that's going to drive conflict with China. Um, she's particularly worried about Trump and his acolytes and how they're pushing the clash of civilizations. Yeah. So for folks who aren't familiar with this contemporary class of, clash of civilizations rhetoric, it's really worth um, um, spinning out how, you know, how, how do we get from um, the kind of appalling comments about Americans that we've seen the president make about elected um, Democratic members of Congress over the weekend how do we get from that to grand strategy? Um, but, but the questioner is quite right. We actually do. And um, we had a really interesting 
conference at New America where I work, where my boss, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who ran the policy planning um, staff at the State Department at one point under uh, Clinton and Obama, had invited her successor, the current um, director of policy planning, um, whose name is Kieran Skinner. And uh, Dr. Skinner came and gave um, a set of remarks, which I thought were a, a real public service in that she laid out sort of how you, her view of how you connect a, a kind of great power. So she started out as how do you connect a great power view of the world to, to sort of Trumpism. And then she said, you know, um, in some ways, she said, it's not that I'm nostalgic for the Cold War. But in some ways, the Cold War was easier because Russia was a fellow European civilization. And um, those of us in the audience kind of scratched our head over that one a bit. And um, I watched my boss try to figure out how to respond to this. And, and then she said, well, um, and, and then Skinner went on to say, you know, whereas China, everything is so alien. And my boss scratched her head for a moment and said, well, but what's odd about that is, of course, is that the U.S. isn't a majority European civilization anymore. Um, and um, Skinner then, and this was fascinating to me, turned back to her and said, yes, but the foreign policy establishment is. Um, and of course, the irony about that is that the, the representation of women and people of color in the U.S. foreign policy establishment has just tanked under this administration and that basically every senior diplomat, woman, and person of color left the State Department within two years. Um, so, but but Skinner, I think, and again, I think this was actually a public service that we had her speak, and she said this because there is really this belief among not everybody who's built themselves into the current Republican coalition, but a significant tranche of them that, that the core problem is cultural. Um, and I think the president himself kind of toggles back and forth between that point of view and, again, the kind of anyone I can do deals with is my friend. Um, and I'm always reminded, just to, to finish up this comment, there was a, a very famous mayor of Vienna, Austria, in the early 20th century, who was a real populist and really known for his nasty populist anti-Semitic rhetoric. But at the same time, he... Um, had absolutely no problem socializing with the city's Jewish elite in his personal life. And someone said to him once, well, how can you socialize with the, the Jewish or this person or that person? And he said, I decide who is a Jew. And I think about that a lot when I think about this administration's desire to, to pick and choose between transactionalism and sort of fanning xenophobia. Yeah, and, and this administration in particular, I think, has brought to the fore something that has perhaps previously been an undercurrent in U.S. foreign policy. I mean, the Bush administration made some pretty strong efforts after 9-11 to try and say, well, you know, it's not it's not Muslims. Muslims are not the problem. It's actually it's terrorism. It's a minority. Um, but I'm not sure that worked necessarily. And, and in this administration, we've certainly seen the idea that it is culture or race um, a, a very ugly idea sort of rear its head into this foreign policy debate. Yeah, something that I think is important to say about the history of American foreign policy and something that I actually think is very important to salvage from liberal internationalism and from the liberal international order is that American foreign policy in the Cold War and post-Cold War period was absolutely built on power and built on a set of ideas of domination and did not shy away 
I mean, it was implemented by, by explicitly racist governments in various periods of American history, did not shy away from working with horribly problematic allies, you know, human rights violations up and down. And it carried within it the seeds of the ability to challenge that. And that the things that, that Americans built at home, um, often fighting against our own government here at home, and the ideals that were exported by the same foreign policy establishment that was propping up the, the problems, um, that, that it exported the ability to fight itself, which is quite a rare thing in a, in a system. And that that was actually one of the real um, sort of core strengths of soft power or smart power. The idea that when you got the U.S., when you got the history of the U.S., you got Dulles and Eisenhower and you got Martin Luther King, you know, and you got Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem. So, um, and it's that actually, that, that twin heritage that I think the current moment in U.S. life is really sort of putting at risk and, and taking out of the basket of tools that, that we had to deal with the world, um, back to the point of what can we do to deal with the world that isn't military. Yeah, I think there's a really unfortunate development just from some of my own work in the Middle East. I'll tell you that the people that like us best in the Middle East are the Iranians, the Iranian population. Um, despite all the, the great power competition, whatever you want to call it, despite the hostility, there's a reason why Obama's decision to open up relations with Tehran was so popular on the ground there. And it's because they viewed American values in some ways as more important than American foreign policy. So um, let's take a couple more questions before we wrap up here. Um, I have one from, Nor from Nora Joyce from Swarthmore College. Um, and she says, it seems the U.S. hasn't had a clear national interest in the post-Cold War period. It's become especially clear in the midst of recent Democratic presidential debates. How can we determine a grand strategy when we don't know what the national interest is? So thank you um, for giving me the chance to, to repeat one of my favorite lines from the article and go back to something that, that Emma said earlier and really tie a bunch of threads together. It's much easier to have a single-minded national interest when you have a single group controlling, if not your whole society, at least your foreign and security policy. So a lot of the kind of nostalgia that we see for, you know, grand strategy that's clear and simple, that has one thing... You know, it comes from um, ages and, and processes where you didn't have um, a raucous, you know, on a good day, raucous coalitions fighting each other for who should benefit most in American, you know, who should benefit from trade, um, whose um, co-ethnics should be defended overseas and who shouldn't, whose construct of American values and Americanism should be put forward. So I make the argument that the kind of multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-confessional, massive um, democracy that we're now living in, we're never, we're never going to have a really clean, crisp national interest in a sentence unless it's we go back to the point where we're really dominated by a, a small elite group of, of one kind or, or another. Um, and so this is why in, you know, Emma made the very good point about the Kennan sweepstakes and I think there's a longing for sort of great men of history across a lot of swaths of American life right now. But there isn't going to be another Kennan, and strategy is going to be a team sport going forward. Yeah, I, I, and I think, um, you know, this question links pretty strongly into the political side of this debate. So not much into the academic grand strategy side of it, but into the political side. So what you just outlined is a, a fairly progressive, liberal view of looking at this, that it's going to be, you know, 
um, that, that America's diversity as its strength now be represented in its foreign policy really seems like the, the Trumpist side of the aisle, the conservative side of the aisle are going the other way in that they're basically trying to redefine the national interest to represent only one specific group. So, okay, let's take one more question before we're done. Um, and we're getting back to actual grand strategy, which I'm pretty happy about. So Jonathan Porch from Seton Hall University says, um, by viewing Russia and China as a super menace, putting them in the national security strategy, are we unintentionally creating a security dilemma with these countries when they could actually be potential cooperators? So I don't buy the idea that there's some magic thing we could do that would make Russia and China cooperators. Um, actually, I, I, but I do what I, the way I would frame it is that we are going to live in a world where we have to do both. You have to compete and cooperate. And so the first trick is to be honest about that and not build them into such menaces that you can't cooperate on the things where you really do need to cooperate. And then second is to form a coherent view of when you can cooperate and what it's worth trading off what for. But um, am I kind of curious to hear you on that one? Uh, I mean, I, I certainly tend to subscribe to that view myself, right? I, I tend to think that pushing back against China is more likely to become a self-fulfilling prophecy than anything else. And I think in some of the grand strategy writings that we've been referencing here, um, that's one of the big differences that we see on China policy, right? And, and on Russia policy to a certain extent. It's the the idea that perhaps if we weren't so up in other countries' faces, maybe they wouldn't be so interested in pushing back on the US. Um, and, and I freely admit that's an assumption that I and others make. Um, but after having tried it the other way for a number of years and it didn't work, I'd kind of like to see if it works. Yeah. So this to me is a really interesting question where you have to bring in sort of what is the agency of the other country. And if we regard it, if we tried to sit in the position of a Russian grand strategist or a Chinese grand strategist, and I think in both cases, there are interests that you would pursue um, conceptualizing the politics and grand strategies of those two countries the way their leaders do, regardless of what the U.S. did. And so I do, I do think in a funny way that kind of, oh, if only we were nicer to them argument overstates U.S. power in a, in a funny way that we're more used to seeing um, in the hard interventionist space, where there's just this assumption that, all of Russia or all of China's calculations are because of what we're doing to them. Well, no, they're from leaders' desire to stay in power, just like here or anywhere else in the world. Well, I don't think we're going to agree on that one anytime <laughs> soon. Um, but we're actually out of time here, so we should wrap up. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us, Heather. Um, you can find Heather's article along with all of the grand strategy writing, references, and a bunch of other stuff um, in today's show notes on our website. Um, I'd like to thank our audience here at the JQA Society, um, as well as our audio helpers on this live episode. That's Cecil Sherman and John Fields. Um, and if you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>